This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. The following content may contain strong language. Hello, this is the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast with me, Simon Stevens. It strikes me that while it may be true that all artists are defined by their contradictions, few playwrights are defined by contradictions quite so thrilling as Antony Nielsen is. Over the last 25 years, he's proved himself to be one of the most consistently surprising and exciting playwrights working in British theatre. His work carved, as it often is, from the rigorous playground of a rehearsal room and the development of devising is always alert and never boring, but it is, for me, most fascinating in its capacity to take me by surprise than just to entertain. His plays from the 90s, most famously Penetrator, which opened at the Traverse in Edinburgh before transferring to the Royal Court Theatre upstairs in 1994, and 1997 Censor that transferred to the court when it was in temporary residency at the Ambassadors in the West End, are both celebrated for their shocking imagery and visceral force, but they are, to my mind, defined more by their tenderness and capacity to celebrate love. His career this century has been even more richly blindsiding. His exquisite love story stitching from 2002 was described as sick and banned by the Maltese government, resulting in a change in the censorship laws of that country. His lengthy, heartbreaking study of mental instability, The Wonderful World of Dissocia, is one of the most playful and alive theatrical shows I've seen. His study of the drear of a daily mundanity. Realism is, in my opinion, spectacular by its capacity to excite and stimulate, undermining any specious notions of high or low art. On the stage, he has directed opera and also written Christmas shows and best-selling farces. He's unusual in my interviewees in these podcasts because while I'm speaking to him, he has a play in production here at the court. The Unreachable in itself has proven a rich contradiction. Like all great plays, it has inspired confusion and adulation alike. I saw it in preview and on one hand was at times distracted by the scripts that actors carried in their hands or concerned about their uncertainty, warned as I was by a speech by Anthony at the top of the play that it wasn't really ready. On the other hand, it got under my skin and has lived with me since. Like every writer I've ever spoken to has been labelled as being part of the stupidly named in-your-face theatre generation. He's dismissed that label as meaningless. To me, The Unreachable is a fine and thrilling example of the polar opposite of that theatre that might rather be described as the back of your head. It sat in my consciousness for three weeks and grown there. It is, I think, a startling play and I'm very much looking forward to seeing it for a second time tonight. Anthony Nielsen, welcome to my podcast. Thank you very much. Um, you worked on that. <laughs> I've worked on it for hours. It's all I do nowadays is write introductions to podcasts. <laughs> the, um, how's it going? How's the show going? It's going well. Yeah, it's, uh, the audiences are certainly really enjoying it and the, um, the online reaction to it has been amazing, really. Um, but as ever... Uh, there was a very mixed sort of broadsheet reaction to it, which there always is with my plays, really. But that gulf seems to be getting wider and wider now. Um, so it's been quite interesting. So it's, it, it feels to me good in that it has got... I'm not sure exactly why, but it has opened up um, some kind of debate, it seems, about the liveness of theatre. Mm. Um, and I suppose specifically how live a text-based piece of theatre should be, you know. Because... What do you mean by that? Well, in the sense, I mean, I think <coughs> there are, you, you know, we expect a, a certain degree of liveness, I suppose, or at least the illusion of liveness from, from, from site-specific works, say, yeah. and all that sort of thing. But within, but within actually what, you know, what, you know, like I'm a writer and I work actually quite firmly within a, you know, I think people expect the shows I make in this way to be a bit looser than they are, but they're always quite structured. They have right. a beginning and a middle and an end, usually you yeah. know, some, you know, it's on. I'm a, you know, I'm a text-based writer and I keep a fairly strong grip of the, of the text. And within that uh, field, you know, how live should something be? How mm-hmm. much should we build the opportunity for improvisation in it? How much should we yeah. break the fourth wall? How much should we... 
um, you know, do any of those, uh, do any of those kind of things. So yeah. you know that that's been um, that's been interesting and slightly accidental as well. Um, do you read your reviews? I do. Yes, I do. I, yeah. I, every time I sort of go to it, I sort of think I, I don't. I shouldn't do this. I I do. But again, there the gulf opens up because you know the broadsheet critics tend to be, in my experience, um, you know this is bollocks or this is good. You know, I mean, essentially, you know, this is yeah. they're kind of like leisure pound financial advisors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in a sense, or frustrated journalists mm-hmm. who are like trying to, I think, perhaps feel. I think there's this kind of myth that they all want to be sort of playwrights, but I think maybe they want to be serious journalists yeah. and that they, you know, so they love a show that deals with something that's very much in the news or yeah, very much good. in the, you know, so they can, because that's easier to criticise, it's easier to discuss, you know, and it feels important that they're discussing. It feels like they're, you know, it's interesting that they they love State of the Nation plays because it allows them to talk about the State of the Nation. Very good. You know, so, um, <clears throat> but what's been interesting has been uh, the, the sort of gulf that's opening up now between them and the online critics, yeah. who by and large seem to be writing. I mean, first of all, they don't, you know, it's a completely different setup for them, and they don't have to write a review overnight. And I do appreciate the ludicrousness of that. Um, so they can think about it for a few days. Mm-hmm. They're generally younger, they're a bit more diverse in their outlook. They seem to write from a place of you know, of real love and, yeah. you know, with, with, with some constructive element to it. And, and, and you know, sometimes I, I read some of the online stuff and, and it's really quite beautifully written. And, yes. I, and I learn something yeah. about myself, you yeah. know, in a sense. I mean, you know, as a writer, when you, when you write stuff and put it out there, you, you don't always know Precisely. exactly what it is that you're touching on. And so, you know, you can have a, a semi-therapeutic relationship with a good... Critic, yeah. and they're they're helping you, you know, notice things in your own work and understand things about yourself. I think, and when I look at all many great periods of artistic excitement, whether it's the kind of pictorial arts of the nineteen tens, or say, punk music in the seventies, mm. critics were engaged with artists. You know, the the, the critics yeah. were as important as the artists in terms yeah. of having a conversation. Yeah. I only get that kind of conversation with people like Dan Rebellato or Andrew exactly. Hayden or Meg Fawn because precisely yeah. for the reasons you're talking yeah. about Matt Truman or Catherine yeah. Love or Dan Hutton yeah. you know, there's, all, a, there's a load of them yeah and they really surprised me and even when they don't you know they don't I mean something like Andrew Hayden who loved this show I mean he's always been quite dubious before but I don't mind if it's coming exactly. from somewhere you know we all love we, you know we're, we're, we're bound together by a love for the theatre and we yeah. should be bound together by a concern for its future and yeah. And it often seems with the broadsheet critics like they're literally just trying to stop you, you know, to actually interfere with your livelihood. Yeah, which is yeah. interesting. Which is interesting because I'll, I'll tell you a story that I've not really told many people before, but it, but it, but it is illuminating. Which is that um, both both my parents were involved in theatre. My, my mother was an actress. My father was a director. He did a bit of acting as well, and um, I I grew up in that um, environment. And occasionally, my mother, who you know has had a, who's had a troubled past, shall we say, mm. um, she would get like a really snide, awful review. You know, like a like a like literally a, like the ones De Jong used to write, like right. a sort of a bit too fat for this part, or a bit yeah. too you know that kind of nasty shit. Um, and uh, she would weep for about three days. You know, and I would sort of sit there. My father tended not to be around, but I would sort of sit there with her for two or three days while she lapsed into a deep depression about it. You know, so um, so I mention that just because it's interesting when it when people start talking about critics and start talking about the debates about critics, and they 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 very much want to have their cake and eat it. I think the old school broadsheet critics, yeah. and I think that they need to understand that people get hurt. Yeah. You know, yeah. badly. I mean, yeah. you can't. I mean, say what you want, act however you want, but you know, when you stupidly and without love and without constructing and criticize somebody, you're first of all interfering with their livelihood, and you're interfering with their um, 
with their lives and their mental well-being. Do you know what I mean? And also the mental well-being of the people that that are around them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I've I've sort of always been hostile to critics. You know, partly because of that kind of thing, and I don't think that I don't think that that devalues genuine criticism to have of that whole um, of that whole system. But you know, what's been interesting is that. I can see now this opportunity for a new relationship yeah. between writers and and critics that is honest, but is um, but is constructive. How how often have you seen the show since it's opened? Well, since it opened, being press night, yeah. uh, I mean three or four times. And is it still? Uh, do you uh, you're directing it as well as having written it? Mm. Are you still doing rewrites? Are you still giving notes? Or are you going just in the capacity to support or with friends or whatever? Is it, it's still a living yeah. thing for you as an artist? It's certainly still living. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I go and see it and I, and I give them a rough general note. Mm -hmm. And it's usually about just sort of stopping mission creep, really. It's just sort of saying to them, look, you know, because it's getting a very, I mean, much more so than I thought it would. It's getting a very big response of laughter and all of that thing. And that can be rather deadly. Yeah, because, because you know you can go into yeah and, and, you, and you you know I remember once we did a show of Penetrator and that was the last time I acted on a stage was in Penetrator and we went out one night and we did it and, and the audience were howling with laughter and we were playing to it you know and we came off stage and we were buzzing and the audience was buzzing and when I sort of came down from that and we were also going oh that was a great 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 show you know I said ah, you know no I think we've you know we crossed the line there you know mm. Uh, it's very seductive, the laughter of an audience, yes. and it can just pull you off course. You've got to keep, you've got to keep hold of the truth of that situation, you know, um, because otherwise the, the, the danger that happens is you have a really good night and then you come in the next night, expect, you know, at that sort of level. Yeah. You've lost a little, like if an audience consents that you, uh, I mean, consents that you should be allowed to let go of the truth for the sake of, gags and laughter then that's sort of okay but you've kind of got to get their consent first you can't go in the next night after having let go of the truth a bit and expect the next audience to you know because if you if you don't get a laugh where you expect that yeah. laugh and you don't have the truth you've got nothing really you know so it's mainly been about that but um there no i mean they're still improvising there's one scene that is, was very i mean there's a couple of scenes that i never really nailed down exactly dialogue wise mm. and they're still sort of improvising around that there are there are there are there are lines and, and and scenes that they're allowed to improvise and of course john joe's character has a kind of interaction with the actors and yeah. i mean one of the reasons why i haven't gone in more often i suppose is that i actually don't this has become a thing that I, 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 I don't want to sit on them. Of course, there are lots of little bits that I'm sitting there going, I wouldn't necessarily do that, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, advise that or I would do, you know, but it's kind of their thing and it's a relationship mm -hmm. they're having with the audience yeah. every night. And with one another. And with one another, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I don't want to interfere with that too much. I want to, uh, I want to go back a little bit and ask the question that, um, that I've asked to everybody and will ask to everybody on these podcasts which is fascinating, you kind of ghosted it already. Uh, and the question for a simple one, which is, when, when did you first go to the theatre? What was your first memory of going to oh the theatre? Well, I mean, I would have gone... I, 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 yeah, I mean, well, like, literally, as a... as a baby, probably. My mother... I don't know if I have this memory or whether this is something my mother told me, but I think I saw my mother playing Cinderella in something wow. in Scotland, and... She said, I shouted out, that's my mummy <laughs> on stage when she was playing Cinderella, which could explain a few things, actually. Well, it's Strange. a fascinating insight into the, the, the thing which you've talked a lot about is the liveness of theatre. Mm. You know, the myth of an actor pretending they're not really an actor, they're not really there. A child sees right through that. <laughs> well, that is liveness in itself. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess. <laughs> Brechtian from... Was that, in, was that in Edinburgh? Were you born in Edinburgh and raised in Edinburgh? Pretty much. I, mean, yeah. I was born in Aberdeen, but I wasn't there for very long. But, right. I mean, I don't know if it was in Edinburgh, because they used to... I mean, Scotland in that time in the 70s was very... It was a very touring culture, you know, right. 1784. It was very much a sort of... Yeah. Um, you know, you would make a show, but it would travel out. Was she part of 784? Was she part of that? 
Um, I think she might have been in a 784 show. I mean, right. it's difficult for me to remember what was... There was 784, there was Wildcat, there was Borderline. They were all... <clears throat> they all had this remit to kind of take shows out to communities. And uh, um, so, you know, I remember sort of travelling in tour vans and things like that. So right. I mean, it, it very possibly wasn't in Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, it, it, because in Scotland you have to you have to move around a bit there's not really enough work in any one city sure. it's not like London you know? was there a moment as a uh, as a young as a young kind of uh, theatre goer when you saw something that astonished or excited you more than anything had before did you have a kind of epiphany moment where theatre became not just something that your mum and dad did but something that you might want to do as well <laughs> well uh, the there is a moment I've talked about before, which is, which I think is, which was my mother was doing a show about, I mean, funnily enough, there's quite a lot of shows in Scotland about what they used to be in those days. Quite a lot of shows about people dying at sea, because like a lot of people died at sea. I suppose it, I suppose it sold well in the Highlands and Islands, you know what I mean? Because people were dying of fishing, fishing accidents, you know what I mean? Anyway, this is what I remember quite a good, Quite a good play. Was it? Was it there was a writer called Donald Campbell who wrote a couple of plays, Jesuit yeah. and um, uh, The Widows of Clyde. Mm. My father directed both of the premieres of those, and I mean I don't know how they stand up now, but I remember finding them quite powerful at the time. The Jesuit was quite. The Jesuit was quite. There was a lot of controversy about the language. I seem to remember and. But the Widows of Clive, my mother played this woman who again who lost her husband at sea, and at the end of the first half of it she lets out, she's told that he's dead and she lets out this horrendous scream. I mean, my mother's emotions were, were always quite close to the surface and she could just blast it, you know. And I remember being really shaken by that and I remember this weird conjunction of the reality of my life at home and this thing happening on the stage coming mm. together and... And I mean, this might be too neat, but I mean, I think maybe that it does, it has certainly affected, it, it certainly influenced the fact that I have always wanted a theatre show primarily to be felt rather than, you know, thought about or analysed as you're watching it, you know, yeah. that, I've, that, I, that I feel like, I feel like I've tried to create as personal an involvement with what's going on as I felt in that moment mm. yeah. you know I mean it's impossible in a way but I think that's always been but aspiring to the impossible is quite a healthy thing for artists to do I think the, the, you yes. know I'm tempted to say aspiring to the unreachable but that would make me a dick <laughs> when did you start writing? Um, well I went to I went I went to drama coaches. The thing is I never really I mean I never I, I didn't ever sort of think, Oh yeah, I'm gonna work in the theatre. You know, right. you kinda of don't. I mean you yeah. you just you just sort of go, that's the last thing I'm Did, gonna do, you know? Cause I in speaking to playwrights I often find they kinda of come to writing for theatre from one of two routes, which is a bit simplistic. They're either actors who stumble into writing, often because they can't get a role, so they write themselves one and end mm. up writing brilliantly. Mm or they're writers who stumble into theatre as the form that most happily articulates what they want to say. Do yeah. you sit in that, anywhere in that, or you, is your background into...? Well, I suppose technically I do, yeah. in the sense that, again, I, I sort of... I, I didn't really plan on... I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I didn't plan on doing what my parents did, and yeah. then eventually I just sort of went, uh, okay, you know, and I just went to like a foundation course thing, a drama course in in, uh, in Edinburgh for a year. Yeah, as an actor. As an actor, yeah, yeah. and I was quite specifically going to be an actor. I had no thoughts about writing. Mm. So yes, I probably do in the sense that I got. I, I then went to, um, but this was, I mean, like I left school when I was fifteen, and I bummed around for you know a while. And then did this year course. Then I bummed around again for a little bit further, and then I went to and then I went to Cardiff, went to Welsh College of Music and Drama, yeah. um, to do a three year course in acting, and got kicked out. I got kicked out. Why? Year. What, what did you do? Um, <laughs> well, again, I think that um, you know a lot of people were like I have a lot of admiration for people who've gone into this who you know whose parents were like electricians or something yeah. or you know but I mean yeah. I didn't really do that you know right. and I'm not. I mean, weirdly, I'm. 
I'm, I'm the least rebellious person around in that sense. <laughs> I'm just kind of doing what my family did. You yeah. know? So I'm not... So maybe that's why I'm a bit rebellious. You know, maybe I've just been in, in this constant sort of theatrical rebellion, you know. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, so, yeah, I got, well, why did I get thrown out there? Well, I mean, there was a bit of a mystery to me, to be honest, but I think it's just that a lot of the people that went there, you know, they were just, like, 18. They hadn't right. really got, you know, they'd... I was just like a little bit further down the line and I had my own agenda of what I wanted to do and I think yeah. I would, you know, so the bits, but I mean, it was stuff like, it was still a, it was still a kind of transitional. You had the people who were running the drama course were, 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 were a couple of Paul Clements and Andrew Neal who both, who, who had both come up and they were the kind of Barry Keith, Jim Allen sort of, <laughs> you know, right. but they yeah. still had sort yeah. of disciplines teachers who were like, like, there was a guy who was, did the movement thing who literally was one of the black and white minstrels. Wow. You know, I mean, not, when I say literally was, he didn't come in like that, you understand. <laughs> but he had, he been, had been, been in the minstrels. <laughs> he had been, although I would have loved it if he had come in. He'd <laughs> come in like in that. blackface. Yeah. <laughs> But um, so, <laughs> so you had those kind of people as well. And I mean, I yeah. suppose that, you know, they would do like a movement project thing and I would do stuff that, you know, I, mean, I, I, I would do stuff that I was, you know, I wouldn't be disingenuous and say I didn't know it was going to piss them off a bit. I mean, I knew it was going to probably piss right. them off a bit. But, um, but, you know, I did stuff that was, you know, that was more sort of about, you know, issues that I was interested in at the time, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't sort of jazz hands type stuff, which again, which again at the time, I mean, you know, again, you're, you're, I mean, I was like 18, 19, you're a bit sort of, you know, yeah, you know, you're a bit contemptuous of the of the West End Wendy's and all yeah. that and the, you know, which I no longer am, I've got to say. I mean, I still have, I still, I have a, I have a healthy respect actually for all of that. But at that time there, you, you get a bit tribal. So you go, yeah, of course. They're, they're the West End Wendy's. Yeah. They're the sort of, you know, we're the kind of gritty. Yeah. Yeah. So we were sort of in that, you know, and we would sort of conspiratorially do these things and it would piss them off. And, of course, then eventually the people who ran it said, look, they want us to kick you out and we are not going to stand up for you. So fuck off, basically. And you sort of go, oh, OK. Had you written a play, as in sat down and written one, on a typewriter no. in those days, until that point you hadn't at all? No. I like so, to swear on these podcasts. Yeah, you can fucking right. say whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, no, no, I hadn't written any. No, I had no. I, I had no interest in being a writer. Right. I'm not entirely sure that I that I even do that much <laughs> now. But I had no, no. So I I got kicked out. So we should sort of go fine. Okay, fine. You know, yeah, all right. Yeah. Deeply hurt on some level. Yes. You know, um, but you sort of go all right, fine. You know. And then in this sort of summer that I had off, for some reason, and I don't, I don't, I still to this day don't know why, I just, the BBC were doing like a young playwrights thing, a radio right. competition thing. Yeah. And I have no idea why I just sort of wrote a radio play for that and literally got it in like, this would be no surprise, but literally got it in like, you know, five minutes before, before 5.30 close <laughs> yeah. on the, you know, breathlessly, sort of threw it through the, <laughs> you know, slow motion, yeah. threw it through the letterbox of the BBC in Cardiff, you know, as the clock hits 5.29 yeah. and 58. <laughs> <laughs> and sort of forgot about it. And then they did it. Yeah. Um, but it was funny, it was weird. I mean, I did get a sense, I'm not at all in any sense, so super, super, but I did get the strange sense that if I did it, something would come of it but I guess I would have probably have forgotten that if nothing had come of it but mm. uh, it did so I did that and then and then I sort of got an agent from that and then I got sort of sucked into the writing thing and slowly I began to think well maybe this is a way to get back to some of the things that I wanted to do and and you did you move back to Edinburgh at that point because your first few plays were for the Traverse and the start of the 90s is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, but they were all very... Well, no, no, actually, um, the first... Yeah, well, okay, so the first play I ever wrote was produced at the Traverse. Yeah. It was, I think, called Welfare, My Lovely. That's right, yeah. And I can't remember the exact chronology of it. I went back down to Cardiff, I think, and I had some friends that were actors, and we did a show called Normal, and that yeah. I just self-produced and put on at the, the Pleasance Theatre in Edinburgh. Right. I was literally the guy, Christopher, 
band, I can't remember his name, a very nice man, gave me a space at the Pleasance Theatre. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we did the door splits and I put that on and that's the first time I sort of directed the show with other actors in it. And that was picked up by the Finborough Theatre. And they did it at the Finborough Theatre. And then I did the same thing again with Penetrator. I, I, but that time I did it at the... I arranged to do it at the Traverse because normal I'd been a reasonably, you know, reasonably successful. So Penetrator I did at the Traverse. Again, they brought it into... The Finber, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And then the court picked and it then, up. That's right. Um, yeah. Were they um, just because I'm fast? I'm really, and I will talk to you uh, when when it's not. It's normally producer Emily, but it's producer Anushka today. When she, t- I've got to keep an eye on the time. But I will talk to you about the way in which you you wrote and made the Unreachable. But in those plays, Normal Penetrator, Ongoing to the Censor. Were they made in a more conventional way? Was it, did you sit down and write scripts that you took into rehearsal? Um, yeah, I think I, I think I did. Uh, I, I think with normal, I, like I just hadn't. I think maybe I hadn't finished the end of normal or something. And but but roughly, yeah, a first draft probably. But yeah, because then mm. I just thought, well, that's the way you do. You know, sure. That's the way you do stuff. Yeah. But I hadn't quite finished the end, and then I think the next time when I did Penetrator. I, there was I'd done less, you know, mm-hmm. so I'd only done like about half of it or something. Again, <laughs> I can't quite remember. Was um, that was it? Do you, if you can't remember it, you won't be able to know if it was a conscious decision to go in with a kind of text which you were completing in the process of making it. I don't think it was a you conscious just, decision. You just can't be asked to finish. <laughs> I just didn't. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't think I tried. But I just didn't. Yeah, I just didn't. Well, at that time it felt a bit. But you know, saying to actors is like I'm kind of finished it. Yeah, but they were like, okay. Yeah. Um, were you surprised by the response to the penetrator? Um, was I surprised by the response to it? Because it was—I mean, it was—it was a sensation, though, of a sort. In that time, mid nineties, it came. It was taken up by the Fimbra, taken up by the court. Hmm. Well, I suppose I would, Yeah, I mean, I suppose I was surprised that it 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 went on. I never yeah. expected for it to go on. I mean, I suppose, but again. <sighs> I mean, for a variety of reasons, partly because my parents worked in, in sure. that and, 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 and partly because I think I have some sort of weird overproduction of anti-stress hormone or something. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really get that, yeah. you know, excited. It wasn't like I was, well, you know, and I didn't have like a big feeling of... I don't know, we felt, we felt quite... I mean, it was pretty rough, Summer Penetrator. Right? Yeah. I mean, I was aware that we were doing some stuff that was pretty... And that whole thing was to be, you know, again, to be really live and really dangerous. And it was quite dangerous. I mean, it was ridiculous. By, by today's standards, what went on on stage was, I mean, we came, we came off cut and yeah. people threw, but I remember the gym throwing a bottle at me, a glass bottle at me, just missed my head by about that much. Yeah. We had this massive knife, which was blunt, bluntish, but I mean... <laughs> It was like the biggest knife you could find. It was, it was blunt, like you couldn't drag it across your... But it was sharp enough that you could slam it into this wooden table and it would stand upright. And he was holding this at Alan's neck and it would just like... Occasionally now you just see a trickle of blood coming down the thing. And, and uh, I shouldn't say this, but Jim used to piss in bottles and leave them behind the fucking back of the stage. And it was like... It just. <laughs> The whole thing was messy and just sort of awful and just kind of off the leash, really, and, and very close quarters. And So I'm not surprised people were a bit freaked out by it. I mean, we were a bit freaked out by it. And we would, and then there was stuff that we, we would make up every night. And um, uh, so, but, you know, I mean, there was, um, it didn't feel so... I don't think, you know, again, when people talk about the in-your-face thing, they feel like this is this kind of... It didn't feel so odd at the time. It felt mm. like, I mean, I think, as you said, you know, I think what people forget is that, you know, we very much, uh, the punk generation, very much yeah. sort of came from that, you yeah. know, and, and, and um, yeah. so actually, again, I, I don't want to be disingenuous and say we didn't know that some of that stuff was, was, was fairly rough, but it, it, you know, we felt like we were doing... We weren't just doing it to shop. We were doing it. We believed in it. You know. Speaking to speaking to uh, there was I've spoken to a few playwrights who've had 
who had breakthrough successes in the 90s, speaking mm. to Ender Wolf, speaking to Joe Pennell. Yeah. And they both talked about a similar thing that you've touched on, which is that they were trying to make... It wasn't that they were trying to shock or be transgressive or provocative, but they were trying to inspire feeling more yeah. or as much as they were inspiring thought. Yeah. That they were le- they were more musical or emotional than essayistic in comparison yeah. to maybe the generation before them. And that's something yeah. that you, you, you've talked about already that was important yeah. to you, that you're creating feeling in the theatre. And theatre, you know, has been... I mean, it, it's constantly happening that it's being, <clears throat> you know, hijacked. Control of theatre is, is constantly being taken sort of by um, the upper middle classes and it yeah. can become very very stale and dull and very sort of, you know, uninspiring. We, you know, and we just felt, you know, we just had an enthusiasm and a passion for it and we wanted to sort of, you know, I guess say we, it sounds like we all sat around on the sort of South <laughs> Bank and discussed this, but we didn't. It was just, uh, I mean, because I remember at the time we were rehearsing Penetrator. That was the first reading of Blasted. Yeah. We went to see the reading of Blasted that was yeah. being done there. and And then I directed the first reading of shopping what would become shopping and fucking when it was called fucking diana um but i I saw mark mark did like a short play and the same evening i did a short play at the fimbra um so that was when i first sort of saw mark's stuff you know so it wasn't a conscious movement but there was a it was a constellation of people attracted to the theater at the same time i think yes i think it was just a bunch of people who had been through the sort of punk thing who just started arriving at at, at theater and kind of doing actually what they yeah you know bringing that aesthetic with them to some extent tell me about tell me about an average working day for you what do you what, what do you do in an average do you have an average working day a writing day. Do you have a? <laughs> uh, it's one of those moments. I wish this was a film because your face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> such a mix of despair and contempt in your well, face. Yeah, because it's no, you know. I mean, I just, um, I just start doing it, and I kind of do it till it's done, and there isn't really yeah. any sort of. Um, I mean, an average day for it depends what you're writing, you know, as well. Sure. It's like some things you some things I can only write at night. Yeah, I can't really write during much during the day. It's usually just it's just awful, horrendous. It's like a sort of I don't know. You're based in London now and have been for twenty years or so, yeah. 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 It would be a bit like you know, it would be a bit like what Terry Waite went through. I think. Do you know what I mean minus the hostage takers? <laughs> If I was, if all the hostages, all the hostage, Stockholm syndrome yeah, with every kick. it would be like that. It would be like being Terry Waite if all the hostage takers were me as well. Do you know what I mean? Somebody just cloned me and came in and would just every now and then coming in and going, drink this fucking coffee. <laughs> Wake up, drink this coffee. Do you know what I mean? And make you like write something. You write something. I'm really yeah. fascinated this thing because I said in the introduction that you that one of the things that excites me most about you is your contradictions. But already when you talk about writing, you've contradicted yourself completely. Have I? So the first thing you said was, "I'm absolutely a writer. I'm an orthodox writer. I work in text-based theatre." And then saying, "I'm not really a writer." Well, insofar as I work in text-based theatre, I mean, I think yeah. that yes. Well, I mean, I am, a, you know. Who knows? I mean, I don't. Who knows how something gets written? I mean, it's yeah. not. Our, do you know what I mean? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you might have to write with a fucking, you know, ferret's jaws tightly locked around sure. your scrotum. It might yeah. take that for you to write. Who are we to ask? Yeah. You know, I mean, people, you do, you know, you do what you need to do in order yeah. to write. And I, you know, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to go too far into because it's not uh, it's not an example I would want to set to anybody do you mm. know what I mean all I would say is like however you get there is okay I'm really yeah. interested this is a quite geeky interest of mine uh, but I know it's one that other writers share in things like really banal things like do you write longhand do you write on computer yeah. do you what kind of room do you write in things like that so do you write on computer do you write yes. yeah 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 so that pretty much Lost the ability to write longhand. Yeah. Like my like my my wrist. <laughs> Wasn't I play guitar? Then apart from that, my wrists would be I think as weak as a sort of baby's wrists. Really do you play, do you play guitar? I do. Yes. That's quite. Do you play in a band? Are you play in bands or just? I, I used to. Yeah. I mean that was one thing I kind of wanted to do originally when I. Um, there was a period of time where I I wanted to be a musician. Yeah. Actually, but then I just thought. It's. 
I think I could have been like, I think I would have been, I think I, I could have done okay if it wasn't so very low, but I, th- I felt like I probably wouldn't like the music that I wrote, do you know what I mean? Right, I, yeah, I thought I, I could probably have been that guy. Who's that guy with the wobbly head that plays the... <laughs> who's that guy again? He had quite a lot of hits. I don't know. <laughs> you know, the oh. singer-songwriter guy, the, the you did David a somebody... Yeah. <laughs> you know that sort of shit. I, I'm genuinely. No I think idea. I could have done stuff that would have been quite popular with yeah. sort of middle-aged. David Bedingfield. Not David Bedingfield. No, 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 no. Anyway, I just thought I would probably have thought I was shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I sort of stopped doing it. Is that? Um, is that? Is that? Um, it's quite a uh, a romantic evocation of the of the writer's work that we write. I remember a mate of mine saying we have to write with a knife to our back. Right. To get you know to re- for the writing to really mean something, is that something that's because you've been writing for twenty five years now, man. To sustain that for so long and for the work to be so drawn from such a position of extremists, mm. the, is mm. that something that is important to you? Yeah, I, mean, I guess it must be. Yeah. yeah, and I guess this, this you know this process in inverted commas, yeah, um, is probably about keeping even that. Yes. But yeah, there is a slightly romantic notion in me, I think, of uh, the idea that you should sort of almost die doing something, otherwise it's not quite, you're not quite giving everything to yeah. it, you know? Tell us about the, just specifically as a case study, about making The Unreachable. What did you start with? What? Um, just the... Uh just the premise that it was about a, 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 a director holding up um, production of this film in, in, because he was obsessed with this kind of light. Mm. And um, the spoiler's here, right? This is a spoiler. This isn't going to go out until, like, autumn. So okay. it's a beautiful... Right. Okay. Which I think is one of the best things about the podcast. Okay. We don't have. We're not put plugging the show. We're cool. talking about it as you as an artist. Cool. So, yeah. so I knew that he was looking for the. I knew that he would. I knew that it was basically the story of how somebody pushes everybody away from them and then finds this light. So I knew that. One of he was. I knew that one of two things was either going to happen. He was either going to. He was going to find his light at the end of it. Um, and we were either going to represent that with the most amazing set we could possibly come up with yeah. or we were going to represent it with nothing that anybody could see huh. um, either way I think it would work that's the low budget version the low budget version of it is he goes oh it's light it's light and everybody goes so there's nothing there you know yeah, and that yeah, also yeah, kind right. of works in its own way yeah um, so I knew that why, fil- why a filmmaker why not a musician or a, pl- a theatre maker who's film you've made films but not many you're not really- uh, well, because, no, just simply because the, the metaphor was the idea of this light. The light, great, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's not a metaphor plucked from thin air, it's something I sort of feel. I mean, that's a true thing. I do get this weird... Um, I, do, I do see this weird light every now and then. I do get that feeling that he describes. Um, and I have always been frustrated that I've not been able to really capture it and most of the stuff that I have done has at some moment attempted to get that through a combination of a moment or a... I mean, actually, if you, if you look back at things like the sensor, there was a moment where... See, all of these things for me are all about a moment at the end. And actually, the sensor... There's a moment where he's told that she's died and he weeps and his wife doesn't know mm-hmm. why he's weeping. Mm-hmm. She misunderstands completely why he's weeping. Yeah. And the combination of music there. And then we cut to an image of him watching this film with this light behind him. Yeah. At the end of Dissocia, when she's like lying on the, on the bed right at the very end of it, we reintroduce this sort of colour and sound and light. and, and uh, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's kind of... That moment of light has always been there in almost everything I've done. But, you know, you, you can never really do it. You can never really get it. And I still haven't done it. So, so, it's, not, uh, so it's not plucked out of thin air. So, 
I, I was dubious about doing it as a film thing because it's not really about the film industry. I don't, didn't want to make it about the film industry. It had to work metaphorically for me. The only other thing I can think of was a photographer, and I don't really know that world, and I don't really know what I'd say about that world. So it became rather inevitable that it would yeah. be a filmmaker. And, and you took that idea to Vicky Featherstone, who's artistic yeah. director here. Mm. And, and what did she say? She said... No, she, she, she loved the idea straight off. Yeah. And so you, it was programmed with nothing more than an idea... Did you write a document for yourself or for the art, the actors, designers you were working with? I think with? I did write. A, I, think I think I did write a sort of rough document. Yeah, I mean, a couple of pages. Right. Saying roughly, this is what it's going to feel like. Roughly, this is. And I haven't, I haven't looked back at that actually, so I don't know how accurate it it, it was because it, the show became something quite different from what I was expecting it to be. So the convention when I've rehearsed my plays, like the first day of rehearsal is immensely predictable. You stand around the room, you meet everybody in the theatre, everybody goes around the room and says their name and everybody forgets it immediately. The most people disappear, you have a cup of coffee, you gravitate to the table, you sit down and all the actors in excruciating kind of embarrassment sit and read the play and I normally am in a kind of a knot of agony throughout and, uh, uh, and then you put that away and start rehearsal. What the fuck do you do if you go? <laughs> yeah. um, pretty much the same thing, except we just don't read a play. <laughs> so what do you do? I do. Um, I don't know, we kind of talk, really, for mm. a couple of days, and we sort of do stuff. I don't know, I, mean, I can't remember. I mean, again, we don't... I try not to go in with a very set... I mean, everything I do, I try not to really go in with the... Like, I'm really, it really pisses people off because I'm not a preparer. Right. I don't really prepare anything, and I sort of now kind of deliberately don't do it in the same way that I don't really, like, I don't take notes. I don't ever write notes or write down anything because I always feel like a good idea you'll remember, you know? Yeah. I think, I think we take notes to just remind us of not very good ideas, do you know what I mean? I think all our good <laughs> ideas we... All our good ideas we remember, and uh, and I. So I try not to, you know. Again, I don't. I don't sort of, you know, swat up on you know Keith Johnson's improv before I go in. You know, yeah. I just sort of think, well, what do we need to do? Yeah. And I try to come up with exercises that will help us get to where it is that we need to do. I mean, for instance, I mean the thing we the thing we did in the first week was we took. Uh, because Matt was playing a director, and so you, you sort of, you, you, I mean, you just, you do stuff, you talk, you mess around a bit, I, 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 that's the beginning of a bunch of things for me, because first of all, what I need to do is I need to hear how people speak, yeah. and I need to hear, uh, yeah. and I need to see how they communicate, and then I need to find out what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what strengths they might think they don't have that they do have, what strengths they might think they do have that they don't have, I've got to start figuring out the parameters. Yes. So it's really just, however, whatever it takes for me to begin to understand that about the actors. Yeah. In this instance, Matt was going to be playing a director. And it became... You know, it became clear to me that... I mean, there's a certain sensibility about being a director, you know, and and Matt's not naturally of that... We should not say he would not be a good director, but he's a, he's much more... You know, he's... A, he's um, you know, he's, he's, he's not a... He's not a manipulative guy by nature. He's very, very open, I don't yeah. think, yeah. He directed, so, I mean, he directed a, f- a short film yeah. that I made, but, yeah, he's, he, he's very kind of open and honest and not exactly... Yeah, say. which can be fine. I mean, that can be fine if you put it together with those other things. But there are just... So we did... So, we, for instance, we did sort of exercises which were about literally... Um, so I thought, well, what, he needs to understand manipulation is what I thought, mm. you know. So <laughs> Is that what directors need to understand, do you think? Well, yes, because I was saying, I was saying, well, the thing is, when you get into a room with a bunch of actors, yeah. they've all got very disparate... I mean, it's okay if you're like, I don't know, I mean, I guess if you're like Steven Spielberg, everybody else fits their way of working to you. Sure. But if you're not, you've got a bunch of actors who've all got very different, you know, some different motivations. Some of them yeah, need uh, affection. Some of them need... You know, to be insulted. Some of them need to be angry. You know, some of them need to be um, enthused. You know, I mean, you just various people need different things. So we literally had this this that's uh, came up with this improvisation where you basically have a bunch of people on one side of the room, and your job is just to get them from one side of the room to the other. But they've all got secret motivations that you've got to figure out and right. use in order to get them to 
Very go good. to the other side of the room, you know. Um, which is surprisingly frustrating and complex. I mean, it takes like, quite a long time to do, and yeah. Matt was nearly going mad with it by the end of it. But um, so that was so the first week was to sort of with stuff like that, you know. When you're working with an actor like John Joe O'Neill, who you've worked with a few times now, yeah, what but never you f- in this process actually. But Had you not right? No. So do you work on this show with people who were familiar with this process? Or no, I mean this this time I actually used very few. The only people right. who'd worked, the only people who had. I've worked with John Joe before. Yeah. Um, but that was at the RSC on a play called The Drunks. Yeah, the Russian play. Yeah. Which was a Russian play. So again, that was not something... You were directing I mean, rather than writing. Yeah. It was directing. I mean, we, we, we were... Um, Nina was translating it as we were sort of... You know, that was happening whilst we were going along. But it wasn't quite the same thing. He also did a sort of late-night sketch thing I did here called The Get Out. So that was probably the closest... Mm he'd come to it. Um, Richard Pyros, I'd done a sort of workshop thing over in Sydney with. Um, but none of the actors had yeah. ever worked with me before on this, no. Did so. they not go mental? Yeah, <laughs> they did go mental. When do you give them text? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Yeah, so what? So how do you I'm manage that? How do you... Mani- just inspiring the faith that the work's... It's difficult. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's really difficult. It's, it's, it's spinning a lot of very angry plates quite a lot of the time, you know. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really tricky. Mm. I mean, it was ambitious. Is it, worth it? Is it worth it? Do you get things out of it that you couldn't get in any other way? Oh, I fucking hope so, Jesus. Yeah, yeah because yeah. I think... I, I had not... I mean, I, when I thought of that... You can imagine having that idea about the guy with the light. I mean, you beautiful, can imagine what that... Idea. Yeah, I know. And, and what you kind of think of is this slightly sort of malachy kind of um, <laughs> melancholic Kozlovskian yeah. sort of yeah. thing. And it's turned into this... But, you know... But that... But it, that seems to be what people need right now and I don't know how that's happened but the form of it seems to be but I think if I had done what I originally maybe thought that I was going to do yeah which was probably about an older person probably more about me it was a bit more of a of a dying of the light play and I yes. thought I don't really want to do that um then I think I, I think there would be a very different response going on to it. I mean, you so, might get some people sort of going, go, but I don't think we'd be having this. Something happened because all again we got like again we got stupid, idiotic broadsheet reviews sort of saying and one particularly stupid one, which was like with Brexit going on and with the that Iraq was that Dominic Cavendish, yeah, wasn't it? Which, which is what I think what, the stupidest theatre review I've ever read. It's absolutely <laughs> moronic. And the sense I get is like the last thing people would want to see is it's a play, play about, about Brexit. Brexit. You know, I mean, that being said, it is about a man who pushes everybody away from him mm. and ends up completely isolated and then, you know, finds this hollow uh, sort of light that nobody else sees. So, I mean, you know, in one sense... It's a metaphor of the United Kingdom. You, can, you could apply it to Brexit. <laughs> or Cameron or yeah, Farage. Yeah, so even, even Dominic Corbyn. Cavendish, if he, if he wanted to apply some imagination, could probably find the Brexit analogy in there. Yeah. But... Um, it's the last thing I think people want to see. And so there is this sense of, we got comedic because, I mean, again, it wasn't the necessarily the intention, but that's what happened in the room and it's what happened in our lives and it's what happened and it's what felt right, you know? So, so you find something in the moment that... The audience is also fine. Yeah, I mean, I you know, something happens. Yeah, yeah. Something, something, all of that grief and all of that, Liveness. I mean, I, I've got to believe that that translates. It's certainly what happens is you end up with a show that I could not have written, that it was, it was not the product of one person. It is, yeah. A, yeah. It is a, it's a show, you know, it's not a play. I mean, I don't really... I mean, I know you're going to say this is not... I mean, I'm an orthodox writer, I write sort of text, but I don't really write... I don't ever feel the need to write plays that will last or that will read well. I mean, I'm or, sure my plays give, read do you, do you terribly. Read, do you read your plays? Do you ever read no. them? No. Not even when you're compiling anthologies or whatever, or you, you never reread them? Not even when I'm rehearsing the fucker. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't even... I don't even look at the script for what, what's it. Like, <laughs> what's it like uh, seeing other people's productions of your plays? Do you do that often? Because they are produced, aren't they? I mean, other people yeah. will do. 
The Unreacher will be will be done by somebody in Germany or France or. Well, I quite like Malta. the German ones are quite funny because that you know because they just go mad on them, and yeah. I don't mind that. You see, I mean, I mean, I'm the fortunate situation that a lot of writers aren't, which is that I kind of do my first production, and I could totally circumvent because I don't have an expectation of what it's going to be, so I can never really be disappointed in it. I just mm. sort of go at some point I'll go, oh well, that's not going to work out, so let's do this, and so it becomes something. So I don't have that sort of oh, shit, when is somebody going to do my show right? Yeah, I mean, like it or not. I've done it, and right isn't even the, the term, it's just it's happened and that's what happened and there it is. Yeah. So when other people go and do it, I think the I think the, it, they must be difficult shows to do, I think, you know? Um, uh, so... Have there been good ones that you've seen that have surprised you in particular? Well, there have been good ones, yeah, but I mean, you know, the, the, the problem is I suppose that then they're trying to treat them like a normal play and then they're trying to yeah. apply the normal structures to them. So you're yeah. doing the same things you normally do, which is you've got these parts and you're going to try and find actors and then you're going to try and find either exactly the right actor or you're going to try and find an actor who's close and somehow manipulate them into doing the things that are in the... Yeah. So it's very difficult for it to feel as natural as it did the first time because they literally almost... I mean, those parts were written for those actors in a way. and So I think it's very brave of people to do it, but what often happens is that they're kind of trying to do the same thing that I did. Yeah, great. Which is the the contradictory opposite. It's understandable because yeah. they're not... I mean, they're not like these great plays that can be interpreted in thousands of different ways. Yeah. Like, you, you can't... You, nobody's going to take Unreachable and set it in post... What, yeah. I don't know who... Maybe somebody did that. But in a way, that's... So when you go and see stuff in... You know, I remember going to see one in, um, I can't remember, was it Austria or Germany mm. or somewhere? And I went with Sarah Kane, mm. and it was, um, they did, see again, Sarah was in that, but I think at that time she hadn't directed anything, it was before Fedra's Love. Mm. Um, I think she would have gone on to do much more of that stuff, but they did Blasted and they did this very, I mean, the, you know, at that stage, I don't know what it's like now, but at that stage, any, kind of any excuse to get your kit off, basically, and it was just, it was just, my friend Stuart Macquarie says, there are two types of plays, knob in and knob out. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and they conspire to make everything a knob out play. So Sarah was absolutely fucking incandescently right. furious with this production of Blasted. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> whereas I saw a production of The Censor, uh, at the same same sort of time or the same yeah. company and um, it was kind of hilarious to me what they did but what they did with it was so it was both amusing to me because they did just all kinds of weird things you know with it which sort of amuses me I mean it didn't work at all at all <laughs> because what they did was there was you know the thing about the censor and the thing about this good and the thing actually that's good about from Reachable as well I mean the thing about the theatre or the thing about any medium is you've got to understand what it doesn't do. Its strength yeah. lies in what it can't do. So um, this is why I'm a bit resistant about projection and all that sort of thing yes. because I sort of think with the sensor it's terrific because you couldn't do that in film because either you would show the fucking which would be distracting you would show this porn film that she was talking about and it would be distracting yeah. or you don't show it which would be coy um, yeah. on some level. So this you couldn't see the film. So of course kind of what she's saying is sort of bullshit but you can't see that film because you as an audience, when she's talking about the film and about how it has this great meaning, deep meaning, you're thinking of you fucking somebody, hopefully. You're not yeah, thinking of porn. You're thinking yeah. of you fucking somebody and yeah. that does have meaning and you do understand what each moment means to you. Try and show the film, but this is what they did. In the end, they made the fucking film with this huge <laughs> cum-squirting phallus, right? Literally, the woman's face with just cum-squirting, you know, like ridiculous, like, and they went really over the top with it. So, I mean, it was sort of hilarious and completely wrong. And because what I love about what you're saying is that theatre, I, I love this notion that it's defined by the things that you can't do because then it places the theatrical space not on the stage or in the audience, but in the space between the stage and the audience and the imagination mm. of the audience. Yeah. Our job is to, is to work the imagination of a room mm. full of people. Yeah, I think you have to think very carefully about what medium you're working in. I yeah. mean, I, I have some ideas. I, you know, one of the first things I think is, is this right for the actual? If it's not, I'll do it in another medium. But, I mean, you know, there are reasons why I've done everything I've done in for theatre and not for something else. So when people ask you to film them, I, you know... 
It's an essay, I just was re-reading really the essay that you wrote, which is probably people have quoted back to you, the Guardian the thing that life. you wrote oh, in the 2007. Thing. About you, it was a playful piece, but it was, it was it, publicity for Dissocia. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a publicity, a publicity piece. piece for Dissocia. It but was an essay. But no, but it was also a, it. It was it was quite a passionate yeah. argument for a, 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 a celebration of theatre and a dismissal of a lot of other theatre as well. It starts off with theatre theatre is fundamentally boring. <laughs> but which. Um, uh, uh, what I was going to ask you mm. was, do you still, ten years later or nine years later, how do you feel, how optimistic or pessimistic do you feel about theatre as an art form? Um, I think... Uh, yeah, I think, I, think, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening. I mean, I think there's a lot more... I think, I think there's a lot of cross-fertilisation going on, but mm. I still think there's... Uh, I still think there's a way to go, there's a way to reach. You know, what, what worries me a little bit is, is that, uh, you know, we're in a very distorted bubble in London. Yeah. And I think when you... I think when you go out into the regions, things start looking a lot different, you know, in terms of... Especially in terms of new writing. In I mean, I am, like, on the, on the... Well, I think... I think, I think there is still a fear around theatre, you right. know. I mean, I think there is still a fear around it in the way that there isn't, you know, from the, from the public. Yeah. In a way, there isn't around um, other forms, mm. you know. Um, there is still. I think there's still a lot of. I think there's a lot more interesting theatre going on, is what I'm saying. But there's still a lot of deathly theatre going on as well. <laughs> um, so it's a it's a matter of finding the audience, getting them to the right stuff, and connecting them to that to that right stuff. So I think there is more on the menu than there was when I wrote that then but I still think it's not we have still not managed to communicate or get necessarily the right audiences to that and we're not really doing everything we can to to make that happen there's an awful lot of um cowardice within the industry in many ways and again one of the things I was saying about Matt which is really nice is that like a lot of a lot of these I mean he's done it a very extreme example and I really admire him for it it's a bit crazy, but he's come back to new writing, like a lot of yeah. the famous actors now. This is Matt Smith, just because this will be broadcast six months. Sorry, ago. yeah, Matt yeah. Smith was in Unreachable. Yeah, I mean a lot of them now. I mean they'll, they'll, they'll you know, they basically made that they, they got spotted doing new writing. New writing. Yeah, they probably then were, went to TV where they probably became massively successful in something that was essentially new writing, like Doctor Who. Yeah, Matt, I mean, you know, essentially it's new writing. A new, yeah, a new I mean, play every week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, essentially that's all new writers that are working on that, and then, yeah. you know, and then they'll either go off to Hollywood or whatever, which I mean, I mean, it would be stretching the idea of new writing <laughs> to say that we, were, you know, but, yeah. um, but then when they, if they come back to theatre, which most of them don't, then for a lot of them that seems to be the risk. The risk is I'm going to come back to theatre. So they'll come back and they'll be in like an old coward or they'll be in a Shakespeare yeah. play or something yeah. like that, you know. So it'll be like, let's see you. Like, it was like that stupid Dominic Cavendish review, which was yeah. at the end of it said, well, I'm sorry, it doesn't matter if Matt hears this now, but it was saying, uh, you've, you've, you've given us alternative theatre, Matt, now give us your Hamlet. I mean, it literally said that. Sorry. You know, it's like, <laughs> and that's exactly the attitude that's killing everything, you know. So, I mean, so you do finally get these actors coming back in and they're doing... Stuff, but it's like no, you know, you 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 owe something. You have a responsibility. Yeah. Come back and do some new writing. You know, come back and take a risk. Take a real risk. Support this because if new writing is not at the heart of it, if that is not at the centre of it, if it's not new work, then I'm afraid it is a relic. It is always die. If you know, if, if something new, if that injection of it, like if, you know, if everything in cinema yeah. was. I mean, I know a lot of high-profile stuff is sequels or remakes, but, yeah. you know, there's still a lot of stuff that's being made. You know, yeah. if, if actually the quota was the other way around in terms yeah. of theatre, I mean, I know there are logistic differences, but then theatre would be an ossified, sort of atrophying form. Who you do know? you make your theatre for? Because the audience is really important to you. Of all the, of all the writers yeah. I've read, the audience is more present for you. Yeah, I, I make theatre for... People who don't come. To, 
I think actually that's you know what's been nice actually about having Matt and this is strangely I've got a lot of people who have come who I think you know there is this sort of you know there is this sort of other swathe of you know I'd probably have to say roughly middle class people or whatever but they are slightly geeky they are slightly you know they're, and they're kind of open to the idea of theatre and they're actually open to newness and to writing and we maybe haven't quite grabbed them and actually so however it happens the fact that they're coming into theatre and seeing something which is you know, where my aim has always been to provide thoughtful entertainment. Mm. I mean, that's the Bjorn Enderville, something which is primarily designed to entertain, yeah. but that you can think about, you know, that has some depth to it. And I think there is a huge appetite for that. That is what, you know, that is what you're getting from the best of these series like The Sopranos and Breaking Bad and yeah, all that exactly. sort of thing. I mean, they are entertainment. Yeah, you know, every, sure. every 10 minutes somebody gets shot you know, but there's a lot to think about. And there's a lot that's talking about the human condition there. You know, and 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 you know. I always so, think in the in the UK or in England, I don't know if it's Scot Scotland has different traditions, but that we still work under the shadow of Shakespeare. By oh which God, I don't yeah. mean we well, write okay. kind of five act plays about kings, but we're writing for the tanners and the bread makers to lure them away from the brothels and the bear baiting, mm -hmm. and smuggling in the greatest speeches of human history yeah. in a way that will stop people from watching a cockfight. Yeah, except and these days they aren't coming. Yeah. You know, these days they've been told that that's not for them and they're not, you know, that's not for, you know, I think, I think the... Yeah, in those days there was no such thing as a theatre audience because theatre was so new. The first theatre yeah. that Shakespeare wrote for was called the theatre yeah. because it didn't exist yeah. before. There's a little class war going on in theatre, yeah. I think, you know, and in terms of the audiences. And, you know, there has been for many years, you know. Yeah. There has been a hijacking of it. I did write a little thing about that once and it remains true. I mean, again, if all your venues are, you know, called the Royal Court, the Duke of York's, the Prince yeah. Charles, the yeah. blah, 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 you know, I mean, you're sending out a certain signal to yes. people. Do you know yeah, what I mean? And, absolutely. And, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've for a long time... I think it should not be called the Royal Court. I mean, personally, I, th I think they should take the royal out of it. It seems like an anachronism to me. Mm. Um, but, I mean, that in a nutshell is sort of what we've been telling people yeah. for years, which is, like, it's not for you. And the old guard of critical establishment have been absolutely complicit in that, yeah. absolutely complicit in it. And, and, and what angers me most is I go, you don't even care about the future of theatre, do you? You, you, you? All you care about is that you're going to have this job until you die, yeah. and then you don't give a shit what happens afterwards, as long as you have managed to funnel theatre into this bottleneck that you find easy to write about. You know what I mean? And I What's think legible talking to, watching you talk is how deeply theatre is fundamental to your sense of self and how much you care about it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a democratic form, and it's a it's a it's a live form, and it, and it's kind of something that everybody should be able to do. And I don't mean that in terms of like we can write, a plan, but it, it's it's a it's a huge form of expression. It's actually the cheapest form of expression. Yeah. I mean, it certainly was for a long time. I mean, it's yeah. easier now to make films and you can make them on your phone. But but even so, you know, I mean, still, all you need here is. <laughs> well, something that you've written or a, a script or whatever and a couple of actors and uh, or something that you are writing, okay? And, uh, <laughs> something some you promise you're going to write. Actors and a bunch of people in a space. I yeah. mean, that's it. And anybody can do it. Anybody can express themselves from any walk of life. And it's crazy that we live in an environment where the, it, it, its concerns are so narrow. Yeah. You know, and it's uh, and 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 even just the makeup of what we're looking at on stage and the ways of presentation, the forms being used are so narrow. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Do you when I'm when I've uh, last my kind of final question, which you can also refuse to answer. Uh, when I um, you say that as if I've refused to answer. No, you've not. No, you've not. I'm just nervous about asking this question because it's quite a private one in a way. When I've when I've got a play which is in production or and it and it's opened and it's pressed and and those mm. fuckers have come in and. Yeah. There's always part of my brain that's restlessly thinking about the next one. You know, thinking about all, the next I, yeah. I, It's just like, all right, what now? Do you, is, does it work the same for you, or? Um, yes, but I think maybe you send a little angsty when you say it. But I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel that. I don't feel that's a bad. I mean, I, I don't. That doesn't make me anxious. No, I, 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 with most of my work, I feel a strange mix of profound angst and self-doubt and profound excitement. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, I mean, I think this is a good thing, isn't it? I mean, it yeah. means you've got. I mean, I think when you're, I think when you're sitting there going, "What the hell do I do next?" <laughs> yeah. Then you're yeah. in trouble. Are you but, excited to be working again? Are you going to? Is what I mean. I guess yeah, my I mean, question I'm going to. You know, uh, yeah. Look, I think I think it comes down to. You know, ultimately, it comes down to the fact that. You, for me, anyway, you you need to need to do this. You know. Yeah. It's not even as a case of wanting to do it. You need to do it for some reason or another. I sort of need to do it. I need to express myself in this way. And I do work in other mediums, and I mean, I'm looking at other ways. But the immediacy of this, the liveness of this, the being in a room, I mean, it's something with, 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 with other actors and working with them in that way and, and just what comes out of it and what happens and then in that space and with people actually there responding to something. I mean, you just don't get that anywhere else. And also the fact that, you know, look, I've got a fairly sweet, deal there's not many theatres that will do it for me but I do what I do with no interference with no censorship with no any you know I mean I'm, I'm you know in that space um, I'm sort of completely free and I'm like completely who I am you know warts and all really I mean for better or worse mm-hmm. you know what's come out of there is it, it is you know an expression of all the people in that room but in some way it is in some larger way, it is, an, it is a, an expression of me. And, and you know, the fact is I'll keep on doing it because I haven't caught the, the, the light yet. Anthony Nielsen, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, then make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or on iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed here, all of the plays discussed here, at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the bookshop uh, at the theatre in Sloan Square. Come to the theatre, come and see the plays. Follow us on Twitter at Royal Court. Follow me on Twitter at Stephen Simon and tune in next week to next week's Royal Court Theatre Playwrights podcast. Uh, I'm Simon Stevens. Have a brilliant week. Thank you very much for listening. See you later. Ta-ra.